0: I didn't do any fishing this week, but I read about it. Here's what I read from a good outdoor writer named Jerry Dennis. Why fish? Why fish? It teaches us to perform small acts with care. It humbles us. It enriches our friendships. It cultivates reverence for wild things and beautiful places. It reminds us that time needs occasionally to be squandered. And it offers relief from endless chores and appalling world events. It makes us participants in nature instead of spectators. We think fisher people. Yeah. Something about that phrase jumped out into my heart, though. It gives us relief from appalling world events. Have you ever needed relief from appalling world events? Text that we're going to be studying today from revelation chapter 20 is a text that deals with two different things one of the things it deals with is the 1000 year reign of christ we're talking about relief from appalling events it's going to be an amazing time and part of the text in revelation 20 is talking about the 1000 year reign of christ that christians call the millennium a time of incredible prosperity and peace when Jesus is going to be reigning physically on the earth. And the other part of the text is about the great white throne judgment, one of the great judgments of Scripture. And so you really have in the text of Revelation 20 one of the most beautiful and one of the most lovely and one of the most compelling passages of Scripture, talking about one of the most wonderful times that human beings will ever experience And one of the most horrifying accounts that human beings will ever experience. John Phillips. When I study a text, I study, it may not seem like it when I preach, but I study it for for hours and hours. And I read about it. I read the text over and over again. And I read about it over and over again from people that are smarter than I am, that have studied it longer than I have. These books are called commentaries. And on each passage of scripture, I may read as many as 20 or 22 commentaries. Uh, Some of them say the same things over and over again. Every once in a while, one of them just jumps out at you. And that happened this week when I was reading about a description of the millennial kingdom written by a man who's an uh, Englishman, and and he's had a long career in America. He lives in the Carolinas, and often with Moody Bible Institute, he's a An expositor of the Bible, a teacher of the Bible. He travels and teaches the Bible. His name is John Phillips, Dr. John Phillips. I just want to read Dr. John Phillips' description of the millennium because it was so thrilling to me when I read it. Can I read it to you now? The golden age has come, the armies of the nations have been disbanded, the great military academies have been renovated to serve a different purpose. The machinery of war has all been smelted down and converted into the elements of peace. Jerusalem has become the capital of the world. The throne of David is there, and the twelve apostles are there, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The millennial temple has been built to crown Moriah's brow. And the nations of the earth have come there to worship the living God. Prosperity is evident from pole to pole. And from the new river, which now graces Jerusalem, which runs to the end of the earth, poverty is unknown. Every man has all that his heart can desire. There are no prisons, there are no hospitals, there are no mental institutions, no barracks, no saloons, no houses of ill repute, no gambling dens, no homes for the aged and infirm. Such things belong to the past, to a lesser age, the bloom of youth, ...is on everyone's cheek. A man is a stripling at a hundred years of age. Cemeteries are crumbling relics of the past. Tears are rare. The wolf and the lamb. The calf and the lion. The cow and the bear. The child and the scorpion... They all are at peace together. Jesus has come, and the millennium is here. This golden age, so frequently heralded by the prophets of Israel's past, has at last dawned, and the earth is filled with the knowledge of God. Jesus is Lord. He rules the nations with a rod of iron. His reign is righteous, and the nations obey. What about that? What a beautiful description of an incredible time, a time that the Bible calls the millennium. Today we talk from Revelation 20, verses 1 through 14, 15, on peace and justice. These are the two things that you really see clearly in the text. You see a time of incredible prosperity and peace. Then you, you see uh, an, an event of incredible justice. You know, in the, in the Revelation, the account of Revelation, in the few verses that are given over to the discussion of the millennium, it's incredibly short and it's incredibly limited in terms of what the Bible says about this 1,000-year period of time, I think, just for a minute, this is a real period of time. It's going to happen in the future on the earth. Can you imagine this? You will have an opportunity, those of you who know the Lord, to live on the earth, on, a, on, a, on a, in an idyllic, utopian earth for 1,000 years when Jesus is in control. There will be no elections during that time. <laughs> Jesus will just be in charge. Well, it would be wonderful. And you and I can experience that. Just think about that for a minute. It's real. The Bible teaches that's as real as anything else. All the other predictions of the Bible that have already come true, this is a prediction that hasn't come true yet, but it will come true. Think about that just for a minute today. There's going to be a time when everything your heart ever longed for here on this beautiful planet will be true for a thousand years. And those of you who are in Christ, those of you who know the Lord, can be a part of that time of incredible prosperity an incredible peace, it's, the, it's everything a human heart ever longed for, this is the longing of the human heart. What's interesting is, in the passage in Revelation that we're studying today, it says very little about it, because the emphasis really is on the victory of Christ over the devil and demons, so it says very little about it. How do we know what we know about the millennium? We know what we know about the millennium because there are lots of passages in the Old Testament that describe it in incredible terms. John, Dr. John Phillips, who wrote this, "Every phrase of what I read to you that he wrote comes directly out of the promises of Scripture. Let me just give you a couple before we go into Revelation 20, to give you a feel for it. I'm going to read to you now from Isaiah chapter two. Here's what it says about this period of time, the millennium, Isaiah 2:2. 2, 2. Now it will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established on the top of the mountains and will be exalted above the hills. And all the nations will flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. This is like the great Bible conference over the earth, right? It's just a maybe, unless you don't like Bible conferences, then you're probably a bad person. But anyway, it's like, it's like imagine this most beautiful kind of resort... But it's also a place of incredible worship and singing. It's also a place of incredible teaching that the Lord is untangling all the knots and the mysteries. What an incredible trip it would be. That would make your Caribbean cruise look silly in comparison. And I'm not sure about that. I've never been on one. But, you know, someday. I don't want to just go on one, by the way. I want to be the Bible teacher on a cruise. That's never going to happen in my lifetime. But now you know a little bit more about my secret thoughts. Then the Bible says this. They they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Let me read just one more to you from Isaiah And chapter 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch will grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. A nursing child will play on a cobra's hole, and the wean child shall put his hand in a viper's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. So our grandson Cohen had a flower the other day. It was pink, as a pink carnation. This is an adorable little pink carnation. You got to keep your eye on that kid all the time. You never know what he's going to do. So he was smelling the pink carnation, and he was letting other people smell the pink carnation, which is what you do with a pink carnation. And then girls were taking pictures, and after a while I looked over, and he was eating the pink carnation. I was like, he's eating it. Just eating it like it was a lollipop. Just literally just eat i was like, we really ought to feed the kid, you know. And it, it, he's the kind of kid that will, would explore a viper's hole. And there will be a time on earth when that will be okay. How incredible. Imagine being able to have this unhindered time. Well, this is the passage. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about those two things, really. Peace, the millennial reign, and justice. The time the Bible says that God is going to have a time of judgment. A great time of judgment for people who haven't believed in him. Now, let's read the Bible together. I'm going to read to you from Revelation 20. One of the most fascinating passages of scripture that's unfolding the events of the end time verse uh, 1 of chapter 20 says then i saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon that serpent of old who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished That's good, right? And then it says, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. That was kind of like the good news and the bad news. Verse 4, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived, they came to life They were resurrected. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. This is the description in Revelation about the period of time that the Bible talks about a lot when Jesus will reign upon the earth for a thousand years. Now at the end of the tribulation we're now in verse 7. Now then when the thousand years were expired Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up in the, on the breadth of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Another last section. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven had fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Well, here you have in Scripture a a very, very powerful teaching from the Bible about what's going to happen in the the end. You're going to have this return of Christ after the seven years of tribulation. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ will physically return to the earth he will then establish, after that seven-year tribulation, He will establish His reign on the earth for a thousand years. Be, then there will be this, and during that time, it will be characterized by peace because Satan is bound and thrown into the abyss. It's interesting because in the sometimes our chapter divisions throw off our understanding of the Bible. It's a good idea to read through chapter divisions a bit. When you do that, you'll notice that that uh, unholy trinity... The beast, the false prophet, and the devil. The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, which the Bible teaches is a place of eternal torment, which is eventually where the devil's going to go, right? But it says that then when probably the archangel Michael, doesn't say, it says a powerful angel, John sees a powerful angel come with a chain and the keys of the abyss, and Satan is not thrown in the lake of fire, the final place, but he's put into the abyss. It's almost like... Satan is put on death row for a thousand years. And that's what the scriptures teach during that time. There's this time of peace and prosperity, this millennium, if you will. This is one of the reasons why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come. And he put in the heart of all believers a longing for the kingdom. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because we all have a longing for peace, a longing for prosperity, a longing for goodness, a longing for a utopia. That was placed by the God who created us in our heart. We have a longing for this. And in this passage, you're going to see we have a longing for peace. We have a longing for justice. And in this passage, you're going to see in powerful ways, God is going to fully and finally satisfy our longing for peace and our longing for justice as well. So Satan will be bound for a thousand years, verses 1 through 3. God sends an angel to do this, probably Michael the archangel. The Bible doesn't say. And again, it's as if Satan is placed on, on death row. In chapter 19 and verse 20, the beast is judged. In chapter 19 and verse 20, the false prophet is judged. In chapter 20 and verse 2, the, Satan is put here in the, in the abyss. It's interesting that he is given four names. He's called the dragon. That's a, a symbolic literary reference that He's called that in in Revelation. It's Satan. He's called the serpent. That's That's a reference that reminds us of his deceit in the garden. He's called the serpent. He's also called the devil. Devil means accuser. He's the one who likes to accuse the saints in particular. He's the prosecuting attorney, right? And then he's also called Satan. The name means our adversary. He isn't your friend. He isn't neutral. He hates you and he wants to destroy you. And he especially wants to deceive you. The Bible says he wants to deceive the nations. It's amazing what happens on the earth when Satan is no longer there to deceive. You want to think today, is it possible that I have been deceived by Satan's great network in the world to not understand who Jesus is and what he's done? Four groups will rule in the the millennial kingdom, verses 4 through 6. In verses 1 through 3, Satan is bound for a thousand years. In verses 4 through 6, saints rule on the earth. And, there, and if you study the scriptures, you see there are four different groups that are part of this ruling. In Daniel 7 and verse 27, it says that includes the Old Testament saints. There's a resurrection here, right? They lived again. In, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, Jesus promised that his apostles will also rule with him during that time. In 2 Timothy and chapter 2 and verse 12, the Bible teaches, this is the good part, that Church-age believers will also reign with him during that time. And so we won't just be there. We'll be there in glorified bodies, and we'll have jurisdictions. We will help him in, in, in his rule. And that's what it says. in the thrones, and they that sat on them, judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Isn't that interesting that that phrase would be there? When you watch television and you see these horrifying news reports of people who are being beheaded, they're often being beheaded for their witness to Jesus Christ and for the Word of God. And they are not going unnoticed. God will say, there will come a day of justice for those people. And there will come a day of justice for those who committed those acts against those people. Justice will always fall from God. And that's what it says there. And so you you have um, Jesus. interesting that when some people think that They they say they believe the Bible but they don't believe that Jesus is God. Well, that's just a silly notion because when you study the Bible like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount talks about judgment. He points forward to the various different judgments. There's the judgment seat of Christ for believers... And that's a different kind of judgment. We'll talk about that some other time. There's the, there's the sheep and goats judgment for Israel there uh, at, the, at the tribulation. But then there's this great, great white throne judgment. Great, bright throne ultimate judgment at the end of the 1,000 years. The Bible teaches, and Jesus claims, he will be the judge on the throne for that. It's really interesting when you, know, when you ask yourself the question, who's on the throne? At the beginning of Revelation, it's like God is on the throne, and then there's the Lamb... By the time you get to the end of Revelation, it's like God and the Lamb are on the throne. And who's judging when it comes to the great white throne? God is judging, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am going to be the judge of the universe. So you don't, want somebody, don't let somebody come along and tell you that the Bible teaches that Jesus isn't God because Jesus says he's going to be the ultimate judge. And this is very helpful and very practical for your life. If you think about this, if you want your life to go well, then just remember this. There is a judge of the universe, his name is Jesus, and he should sit on the throne of your life, and you should do what he says, and things will, you know, things will end well for you, right? And that's really the, the whole trajectory of Revelation. You would think that when it describes the millennium that you would get in Revelation a lot of this description of this beautiful time, but it's not what you get. What you really have here is very consistent with the literary theme of Revelation, which is there's a great cosmic conflict in the world going on and there are serious enemies that are pressing against christ and those who love christ and they include the devil and demons and a whole network of ugliness and godlessness and rebels against god but jesus is going to come and absolutely destroy and judge all of his enemies and reign with those who believe in him and so it is really this idea the theme of the book of revelation is repeated over and over again initially when the, the letters to the churches, in almost every single letter to one of the churches, it says, And those who overcome, they, this is what will happen to them. That overcome thing is the theme, really, of Revelation. And the word, remember, from the Greek is the word we use, like for Nike, for victory. It's like this. Even though the saints who are following the Lord may be lined up as sheep for the slaughter, like it says in Romans chapter 8, we are more than conquerors. We are superhero conquerors. We are super winners because of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. We're going to ultimately win. Those who ultimately win are going to be those who are with the ultimate winner, the ultimate conqueror, the ultimate victor, whose name is Jesus. That's what this book says. And so when you have the description of the millennium, you don't have, in Revelation, you don't have a lot of language about how wonderful the millennium is going to be. You have to read somewhere else for that what you have is this clear, powerful statement of the victory of Jesus and of those who reign with Him. Very clear, very helpful, very practically helpful. If I'm a young man, and I'm I'm young again, and I'm trying to make my way in life, there's one thing that I'm going to make sure that I do, and that is I am going to be rightly related to the one who rules the world in the end. If I'm a young woman, and I'm making my way, and I have questions to ask, and I have longings, of that, one thing I'm going to make sure is that Jesus is my King, because He is the King. If you don't have anything else in your life figured out, make sure that Jesus Christ is your Lord, your Savior, your King. He's the one who created everything. He's the one who redeems everything. And He's going to come and judge everything. And then He's going to rule everything. So this is what the book is really about there. And you have the saints reigning with Christ during the one thousand year reign and then it says in this uh, in, uh, one of the blessings of Revelation verse 6 blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection because the second resurrection right these are people that are going to be resurrected for judgment and sent to hell and it says blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection over such the second death has no power in other words if you're a believer in Jesus Christ you are going to die once if you don't go to the ra- up in the rapture but you are not going to die and go to hell. The second death. And so death isn't really death. That's why it's often called sleep. as a euphemism for believers. It's like they're sleeping. Well, they are dead. Physically, they're dead. But spiritually, they're very much alive. Your loved ones who have died in the Lord are much more alive now than they were when they were alive. And you can have eternal life. And God has put in your heart this longing for eternal life and for peace and for justice. That's God-given. And the answer, the great satisfaction for the thirst of your soul is Jesus Christ. And so this is why you have blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for 1,000 years. You ever hear the hymn? We, We sing it at Christmas. But it's a millennium hymn, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart, right? That's a millennium hymn. That's a second coming hymn, really. And then you have these four groups that rule. And you have a second section. It starts in verse 7 and goes through 15. I call the first section peace. And I call the second section justice. Because now you're going to see two groups get justice. One of them is Satan is going to get justice finally. And the other group is everyone who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. That's starting in verse 7. When the 1,000 years has expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Okay, when you read that, what was your first thought? Yeah, who said that? Why? 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 This is a natural question everybody asks. Lord, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> you had the devil. You put him in chains. You threw him in the pit and it was so nice without him and and now he's back why lewis barry chaffer president the original the, the initial president of the, the uh, dallas uh, theological seminary one time was asked why did jesus does jesus loose satan and lewis Berry Chafer's answer was if you will tell me why he set him loose in the first place i will tell you why he set him loose again And that really is a very theologically sound answer. Remember what I said a few weeks ago quoting Martin Luther, even the devil is God's devil? God has chosen to use evil and Satan and everything that Satan tries to do and all the evil things that came into your life, he's so good and he's so powerful that he takes those things even though they were meant for evil and he's in his sovereign power he turns them for good have a niece who just went to the mission field. She was so excited about going to the mission field. She prayed about where God wanted her to go to the mission field. She raised her money to go to the mission field, and then she went to the mission field. She was so excited about that. She went to Tijuana, Mexico. This week, she had to come home. One asthma attack after another, she was getting as many as eight asthma attacks a day, and she called her mom and dad, and they said, you got to come and get her, and you got to bring her home. So she had a good attitude about it, but she said to mom and dad, Why would God do that? Why would God put a desire in my heart to go to the mission field? And I get to the mission field and I can't stay there. Why would God do that? Why would God set Satan free? So mom and dad said, well, let's read about Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael went to India and she had a tremendous career in missions in India. But first she went to Japan and failed. Why did Amy Carmichael, why did God let Amy Carmichael go to Japan and fail, right? And then they said, well, let's talk about Corey ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom w- survived the Nazi uh, holocaust and the prison camps, but afterwards she went all around the world witnessing for God and speaking for God and was powerfully used of God and wrote tremendous books of hope for the world. Why did God let this poor Dutch woman who was sheltering Jewish people from the Nazis, why did he let her go to Dachau? Why did he let her sister die? Why did he let her father die? Why did God let His Son, His perfect Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, die? It is because God wants to demonstrate His glory and His power that there's nothing that He can't do. Why is He allowing you to go through what you're going through right now that so tests your faith and so breaks your heart? Why does He allow such evil in the world? We don't know now, but we know this. He is the King, and He can take the darkest evil and turn it for the brightest good. He's that powerful. this is what the Scriptures teach. As a matter of fact, Abraham Kuyper once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, is not Lord. Bill Blair, I didn't get a chance to ask your permission to tell your story. So I'm asking now, is it okay if I tell your story? Okay, thank you, Bill. He has no idea what I'm going to say right now. Bill is a sweet guy. He's from Kentucky, and we like people from Kentucky. I've had good relations with people from Kentucky. So I love to hear people, and I love to hear a little Kentucky in their voice. And I love for them to tell their stories about Kentucky. Went to his house one day, beautiful home, obviously a really diligent man, wife is a good decorator, and they hosted me for strawberry pie, which I didn't really need, and um, talked with him, and talked a little bit about Kentucky. He said... He loves Kentucky, and he always planned on going back, like all Kentucky people do. And he said something like this. He said that every day when he was working, he would take a break, and he'd walk outside the factory or the, where he's working, and he'd look, and he'd see a train go by. Bill, I don't remember exactly, but I know one of the cars said Kentucky on it, right? Yeah. And so he said whenever he would look at that train go by, it would remind him of Kentucky, and he'd say to himself, I'm going to go back home someday every day he'd walk out there and he'd see that train and he would think he'd think about the bluegrass and the mountains and his home place and but you know how it works your family grows up and then your kids and your grandkids are really important to you and your wife won't let you move away and uh, you don't want to move away bill here's what i was thinking about this week think about the one thousand year reign of christ i don't know in the eternal state if the earth will be like it is now but i know that for a thousand years there's going to be an earth, there's going to be a Kentucky more beautiful than any Kentucky you ever remember. And you are going to have 1,000 years to go visit, check it out, see what's happened with your old friends and so forth. What, an, what a tremendous time when you think about, is there a place on this earth that you'd love to go and spend some time and explore it and see what, what it's like? Is there, is there a thing that you'd like to do? And then from time to time, there's going to be a great conference in the new jerusalem would call up before the lord the new jerusalem being later but during the time of the tribulation there excuse me during the time of the millennial reign there will be a time when people go up and and to uh and to be with the lord but you notice what happens in verse seven that there's the thousand years are expired satan is released he goes out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth gog and magog this is a literary reference to people that have opposed the Lord, or nations that have opposed, uh, have opposed the Lord, to gather together for battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. You don't want to be confused. This isn't the battle of Armageddon, but it's like Armageddon. It's kind of a reminder of Armageddon. And Armageddon was before, right? There's going to be this, this gathering of all the nations. And then what does the Bible say? He's going to win. He's going to consume them with the breath of his mouth they went up the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints as a verse nine and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them and the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever so these who oppose the Lord at that time Satan is released God chose his power again here is a re- here is a possible reason why God would allow a 1,000 year reign is you have a you, have, you ever have people say to you, you know, I'm really not all that bad? If my environment was a little bit better, I would do It's just the people around me, right? So God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a, a, a thousand years of really good environment. And the people that are born to believers during that time, some of them will still have a rebel heart against God. As soon as Satan is released, he tempts the nations again, he's able to gather rebellion, which proves that the, the, the depravity of man, and it also demonstrates the power of God. And then there is... This, this great white throne. I saw this great white throne. Otherwise, may have been called, from an understanding of the word in the Bible, a shining throne, a bright throne, a great, bright, white, shining throne. And him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. That's probably a reference to the refining of the earth by fire, because that happens about this time, that God is going to renovate the earth, the Bible says whether we have... Theologians disagree about whether it's a totally new earth after that or whether it's a refined and renovated earth after that. Good theologians disagree about that. But that's what... It says the, the, the heaven and earth fled away from the face of the one who sits on the throne because he's going to see that in the next chapter he's going to make a new Jerusalem and a new heaven and a new earth, a new, new Jerusalem. And then he says, uh, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, books open, another book open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. The death and Hades were delivered up of the dead who were in them. And they were judged each according to his works. And death and Hades were cast in a lake of fire. This is the second death. So you see Satan is cast in a lake of fire. Those who come to the great white throne are unbelievers. They're judged because their name is not in the book of life or the Lamb's book of life. We'll see that in a moment. They're judged because of their sins that are recorded and then they're cast into hell. Jesus destroys the devil with fire. Jesus Christ then is the judge at the great white throne who after giving people multitudes of times to repent, like many of you that are sitting here, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're hearing my voice, I'm telling you the gospel. This is a chance that you have to align yourself with the God of the universe and believe in Christ and know that you have eternal life. And we'll never face the judgment of God for your sins, which are many. All of us are. The Bible talks about the throne of God and of the Lamb. The Bible here talks about the book of life and the Lamb's book of life. The books, the books that are open and the, and the book of life or the Lamb's book of life. The, the book that's referred to three or four times in, in the book of Revelation that has the names of those who are believers, who, who believe. And, and people whose names are not found, and anyone not, verse 15, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You understand that the Bible doesn't say that there's a, like a pan scale at this judgment. The Bible doesn't say, for instance, you know, that there's going to be a judgment, there's going to be good people and bad people that have good and bad works, and God's going to weigh their works, and the good people are going to go to heaven and the bad people are going to go to hell. There's literally nothing in the Bible about that that's not what the Bible teaches. It's, is your name in the book of life because you believed that Jesus Christ is God, your Savior. Or have you persisted in not believing that? And unbelievers then are going to have to answer for all their sins. What a horrifying thought. Think about that. Two things here. For some of you, this should be thrilling news. For some of you, this should be thrilling. One of these days we're going to reign on earth and we won't be sick anymore. We won't get old anymore. I'll be able to play softball then. My knees will work. I'll actually probably be pretty good at it. Then I will join the team. Everybody asks me to join the team. Now I'm like, you don't want me to join the team. Seriously. You want me to root for the team. You don't want me to join the team. You don't need me. Then we won't be sick anymore. We won't deal with cancer anymore. This should be thrilling. It should be thrilling to think that those who oppose God and who oppose the things that are right, that God's going to fully and finally judge that. This should be thrilling to us. Think about this. Because of the victory of Jesus, I was thinking about this. Uh, You know, the troubling things that come into your life, the storms that come into your life that really kind of rattle your cage and frighten you, the things that you worry about, the problems that come in, you know, the hurts that you have to, we all have to deal with, the things that frighten us. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, his old Bible teacher, uh, he's with the Lord now, but he told a story about this. He set out in, I think it was Oklahoma or Texas, I think you grew up in Oklahoma, he said the storms in Oklahoma were very frightening and very, very dangerous. And J. Bernard McGee said that he would be with his dad out in, on a, riding a wagon out, taking care of a chore way out on his property, and a big storm would come. and It would be a very frightening storm, and there would be lightning, and there would be thunder, and there would be wind, high wind, sometimes tornadoes out there. He said his dad would reach over and pull him really close to him, and he says, it's going to be okay. You're with me. It's going to be okay. J. Vernon McGee said, that's what God does to his children. He pulls us close into his promises and he says, you know, it's a storm, but I'm greater than the storm. It's going to be okay. You're with me. This truth from the word of God should be really thrilling to you. If you know the Lord, if God is your Savior, if God is your Father, this should be very thrilling to you. It should be thrilling for a number of reasons. One, because Jesus wins and you are a conqueror with Jesus. You've overcome. Because Jesus defeats evil, if that's true and He lives in us, then we can overcome evil. Because Jesus rules, then we get to rule with Him. Because Jesus judges, we can live with discernment. It should be thrilling for us. So for a lot of us, it should be really thrilling. It should be the most thrilling thing you've ever heard. For others of you, though, it should be chilling. It should be a little scary. This should be very frightening to, to you. The Bible teaches, like, for instance, you know, when those books are open, and the Bible teaches, Jesus himself said, Did you know that you'll be judged for every idle word that you speak? For a guy like me, that's a scary thought. I remember when I was a boy, my mom read me the Bible. You know, it was on Francis Street in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Family devotions. And she read the part where it says, if you say, you fool, you'll be in danger of hellfire. I said, wait a minute, Mom. Back up and read that again. And now I watched my mom's eyes for some caveat, some, you know, disclaimer. It doesn't really mean what it says. My mom was sharper than that. She just looked at me. Like letting the law do its work in my heart, which I could do that to you right now. If you don't know the Lord, I wish there was a way... That I could conduct myself that would put the fear of God in you. (laughs) We're in a holy land and we're talking about hell with a professor who wasn't really sure there there was a burning fiery hell. And I was with a girl who was pretty sure there was, my wife. And I didn't know what my wife was going to say to the professor because he was a professor and we're not. And I remember her saying, well in my neighborhood there was a pastor and that pastor believed in hell and taught it. And as a result of that I got saved. I'm glad he believed in hell. The Bible teaches that Jesus is going to judge unbelievers and then cast them into hell. He warned about it more than anybody else because he knew it was true. And that will happen to some of you because if you have to go before the judge with your own sins, you are in serious trouble. That should be very chilling. That should be very frightening. Every idle word. We had a lady in our church, not this one, and she was elderly and and she was uh, highly esteemed. She was a Sunday morning, Sunday night Wednesday night going, Bible-toting, doctrinally-informed lady with a reputation for being godly, and she had our son mow her lawn, Chuck, and, and, and she didn't know how modern technology worked very well, so from time to time, she would call our house, and she would ask if Chuck could mow the lawn, but if he wasn't home, and if she didn't hang up the phone right away, then whatever she said after that would be recorded on our answering machine, Which is really fascinating when a person cusses like a sailor. To be very honest, there were at least two sins involved her sin in doing the cussing and ours in listening to it over and over again. I mean, the kids did. (laughs) would be like, who knew it? God knew it. And he knows every idle word I've ever said. And he knows my stray thoughts. He knows all the dark things in my heart and yours. Now here's the deal. According to the Bible here, you are going to, and I am going to stand before God's judgment someday. And the judgment for our sin is going to fall on us unless the judgment for our sin falls on the one who made us and who redeemed us and who will one day judge us. Jesus Christ Praise be unto God. On Calvary died for our sins. Does that make sense to you now? For our idle words, for our lustful thoughts, for our angry spirit, for the theft. And whatever it was, our disrespect, whatever the sins are, they they either fall on us at a judgment and we go to hell, or they fall on Jesus, who is the judge. There was a great pastor in the South. It was in Kentucky, in Louisville, Kentucky. And he, and he pastored a great church, and he had a message. It, the, his name was R.G. Lee, and the message was famous. It was called Payday Someday. You, ever, you, can look, you can watch it online. It's an amazing, convicting message. And he uses a story from the Old Testament of Jezebel and Ahab. Remember that story? And they have this, this vineyard that, that, that Ahab, the king, wants this vineyard. It's this guy named Naboth, and he wants his vineyard. And he's crying, he's pouting about it because he can't get the vineyard because Naboth doesn't want to sell him the vineyard. And Jezebel, the queen, says to him, you're the king. If you want the vineyard, we'll work it out so you can get the vineyard. And so they plot and they do evil things in order for him to get the vineyard. And he gets the vineyard. And then the prophet of God comes along and says to him, basically, someday you're going to pay for this. Someday you're going to pay for this. Someday there's going to be a payday someday for this pastor goes on and he preaches this message it's a frightening message really where he basically keeps saying there's going to be a payday someday and one day if you recall there was a horrifying payday for jezebel and for ahab and there's going to be a horrifying payday for you and there's going to be a horrifying payday for me unless my sin is on christ he ends the message by referring to isaiah 48 and verse 18 Toward the end of the message, R.G. Lee says, Isaiah 48, 18, Oh, that you had heeded my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river. You have a longing for peace, and the only way you're going to get it is through the Prince of Priests, Jesus Christ. And You have a longing for justice, and you really don't want that to fall on you. You really want that to fall on Christ. Here's what I was thinking, and I want to show you this before we conclude today. God's holiness is a lot greater than we think. We tend to think of God's holiness as, you know, kind of uh, something that we could satisfy. But it's impossible for a human being to satisfy the great holiness of God. And our sinfulness is deeper than we think. You know, we tend to think, well, you know, I'm basically a good guy, I've tried to be a good person i've tried to take care of my affairs and so forth but that's because we're not seeing the great holiness of god when you get to the judgment seat of christ i'm sorry when you get to the great white throne judgment that we study today one of the things that you see at the great white throne judgment is that god's holiness is a lot greater than you thought and that your sin is a lot greater than you thought and god's mercy is a lot wider and a lot higher than you thought I love Psalm 103. As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy to us. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. His mercy is much higher. It's much wider than we thought. Our sinfulness is much deeper than we thought. God's holiness is much greater than we thought. God's grace is much richer than we thought. And time and opportunity are very limited. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We're going to have a closing psalm. But before we do, I know there are some of you here that you just want to say today in your heart, thank you, Lord, that this is true. And help me live like I really believe it. And there are others of you that, if I were to say to you right now, it's like, if you really were to die today, would you go to heaven? You wouldn't be able to say, I absolutely know I would go to heaven. If I ask you the question, are you confident that all your sins are forgiven, you, like, you wouldn't be able to say, yes, I'm, I know all my sins are forgiven. Here, here's what I want to do. Listen carefully. We're going to sing a beautiful song here together about the second coming of Christ, and then I'm going to stay in the front, and, and not for small talk with folks, but to talk with anybody who wants to inquire about how to be saved. So you just like, when other people go, come down, shake my hand, and we'll just talk a little bit about how we can arrange for you to have a meeting to sit down with someone, and and they will explain to you how you can know that you will never go to the great white throne judgment, but that you go into the heart of God. So stand together now as we sing this final song, and then please come and see me afterward if I can be a help to you.